You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. chapter 1, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 1. We're going to be spending um, quite a bit of time in the book of Acts this year. So I hope that you'll hang with us and see what the Lord's going to do. Uh, I think I've told you before that uh, I've, I've always been really intrigued with space travel, with NASA and I read a lot of books, and I don't know, I've just I've really been intrigued with uh, the idea of traveling in space. And the Apollo 11 mission, where we put a man on the moon, two men to be exact, has always been something that was just amazing, that, that we were able to, to pull that off with the technology that was available at the time through an aggressive um, plan to, to be able to put a man on the moon in such a short period of time was an amazing, amazing thing. On July 16th at 9.32 a.m., at Cape Kennedy, a rocket launched with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins. And the goal was to put two men in a place where no one had ever been. Matter of fact, in the history of mankind, no one had ever left this surface. Up until the Apollo 11, there had been some men who had circumnavigated the planet. Um, there have been missions into space, but nothing like what they were about to, to undertake. So this rocket launches and everything's going good and, and all of the people who worked so hard to make that happen, the technology that you've got in your cell phone right now is far greater than much of the technology they had to pull off this mission. On July the 18th, uh, the crew had already kind of broke free of Earth's orbit and we're making their way towards the moon. There's a point in time where the gravitational pull of the moon takes over from the gravitational pull of the earth, and there's that moment in between where they kind of leave the gravitational pull of earth behind and they begin being drawn to the moon. They were 139,000 nautical miles from earth, the furthest anyone had ever been. And at that moment, uh, President Nixon calls up a friend of his by the name of Bill Sapphire. Bill Sapphire was a, a columnist. He was a well-known writer at the time, and, and Nixon would lean to him on, in regular times to write speeches for him. So President Nixon asked Bill Sapphire to write a speech for him. The title of the speech is In Event of Moon Disaster. Nixon, uh, NASA, uh, the three men who were on that ship going to, moon, to the moon, they, they knew the inherent risk of this mission, they, there was a high probability that they wouldn't complete the mission, something would fail, that they would lose two or all three men. And one of the possibilities that they had some contingency plans for was what if these two men make it down to the, to the surface of the moon and something happens in the descent down to the surface of the moon or something happens while they're on the moon and these men cannot be rescued. So President Nixon contacts Bill Sapphire and has him to write basically a eulogy. 
for the two men who would go down to the surface of the moon. You've got to understand what they knew about space travel, what they knew about the surface of the moon, what they knew, what was, they didn't know what was going to happen. All of this was, was hypothesis based on scientific experiments that they had done, but, but they didn't know. I've, I've read the transcripts of, of where uh, Aldrin is walking around on the surface of the moon. He's reporting back what the surface is like. And in his reports back, he's talking about what they expected and what he's actually found. They, they didn't know. So President Nixon is preparing for a failure. I want to read to you the eulogy that was never read because, of course, the mission was a success. But if it had failed, if those two men had made it down to the surface of the moon and something happened, there would be no way to recover them from the surface of the moon. If they died on the surface of the moon, there was no way to get them off of, that, off of the moon. And they had a plan in place for what would happen and how they would respond. This is the letter written July 18th, 1969. Now remember, the astronauts are about 139,000 miles away from Earth when this letter is written. This was the letter, this was the speech that Nixon would read. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin R. Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at the stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Now, at the end of the letter, there's instructions to the president on what he's to do prior to reading this before a nation. He was supposed to contact the widows and give his condolences. And then after that, they were to have a clergyman, a priest, at Mission Control who would basically, over the airwaves, to the two men who are stranded on the moon, read last rites to them, read the Lord's Prayer. And the plan was, at that point, when they knew there was no hope for recovering these two men, they would cut all radio contact. There would be no further contact with the two men on the moon, and they would be left to die there. Now, that's a pretty horrible plan B, but they had to have it. It's understandable why they had to have contingency plans on what to do if something goes wrong and how to handle that, because all of this was absolutely brand new. The capsule they're in, all of the technology, none of this existed before they set out to put a man on the moon. What does this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, Jesus has been preparing 12 men for three and a half years. He, he has been very clear with them. He's been, he's been extremely specific about who he is. He's been specific about how these men are going to carry out the ministry once he's gone. The closer that Jesus gets to the cross, the more specific he is about what is going to be required of these 12 men. 
there was no plan B. You, you can read the Gospels. You can read the book of Acts. You can read Paul's epistles talking about the Great Commission of what the church is called to do. And nowhere in those pages will you find anywhere where there is a plan B. What if it doesn't work? What if it fails? What's the plan B if, if these 12 men do not follow through with what God has called them to do and is going to empower them to do? There is no plan B, folks. Reaching the world with the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ comes down to 12 men. Eventually it will become 11. But 12 men who are fishermen, tax collectors, and the Bible describes a few of them as zealots. It basically means that they hated the Roman Empire. They wanted to free the nation of Israel from its control and from its bondage. And these men have been part of a movement to do that by force. So this is the 12 that are going to continue on with the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. Ordinary men. Men who were not educationally trained. Men who were not leaders in their communities. Men who were not part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. The men who, who had been raised as Jews but, but were fishermen, tax collectors, and Average, everyday people who have reported to a job and supported their family. These are the guys. And on top of that, there is no plan B. Turn back to John for just a moment, John 14. I want to I elevate this even more by something Jesus said to these men. So in John 14, Jesus, again, is telling his men that he's going to leave and he's going to depart, and, and they're all stressed out about that. They, they don't know where he's going or why he's leaving, and they don't understand. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come, a comforter. He's going to empower them to do what they've been called to do. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. Now that doesn't just include the 12 men who are sitting in his presence. This encapsulates all who will believe in Jesus Christ. Hear what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now that, folks, is a mind-blowing text for me. Jesus, who raised Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus, who gave the blind back their sight. Jesus, who would go from town to town and do all kinds of miracles, teach in incredible ways, go after people who are broken and outcast. Jesus says to those 12 and to all of us who've put our faith in him that we will do greater works. And we need to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that we will be greater miracle workers than him. He's not talking about greater in extent of power. He's talking about greater in extent of reach. Did you know that Jesus spent all of his ministry and all of his life in a very, very small geographical location. So when Jesus says we're going to do greater things and that these 12 are going to do greater things, he's talking about the gospel going forth to the world and that that gospel in words and works and wonders is going to spread to places that Jesus would never step foot upon those continents and those places. But these 12, and there's no plan B. Well, Judas is the first to fall by the wayside. Under the influence of Satan, he betrays Jesus, sells him out. Judas would go on to lose his life 
and be eternally separated from God forever because of his denial and because of his lack of faith in Jesus. The eleven, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, Philip, Bartholomew, who in the Gospel of John is referred to as Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. That's all that's left, the eleven. There are other people who put their faith in Jesus. There are other people who are following him. But these are the eleven. And these eleven are going to be handed the gauntlet to continue what Jesus has done. And not only that, to a greater extent. No plan B. Luke writes his gospel to encourage and strengthen a guy by the name of Theophilus. But not just for him, but for the church as a whole. And Luke sets out to write a, a narrative based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus to give an account of, of, of what Jesus came and accomplished and taught and did, the works, the wonders, the words. Luke writes that gospel to encourage all those who will follow Jesus. But then he writes volume 2, the book of Acts. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. And Luke has an amazing writing ability, amazing ability to give us the account of what actually happened. This book of Acts that we're going to be spending a lot of time in, if you'll notice on the first page of your Bible, right at the top, you'll probably have something that says this, the Acts of the Apostles. Now that would lead us to think that what's going to happen in the pages that follow is up to these 11 guys and the ones who will put their faith in Jesus to basically pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and by their own leadership and get this mission done. If that's what you think about what is going on in the book of Acts, you are missing the point. And I hope to show you different over the next coming weeks. You see, it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit living in the Apostles. And folks, that's the game changer. And that's where we want to start looking today. Jesus is spending some time with his disciples after the resurrection. It's 40 days to be exact, and I would love to have known what Jesus is saying to these men during those 40 days. Imagine this, Jesus in his post-resurrected form. He's not a ghost. He's got a body, and in that body you can see the wounds of what he endured with the crucifixion. You can see him in his wrist. You can see it on his head. And Jesus is not only meeting with these men, but he's having meals with them. And he's teaching them. So these 40 days in this account in Acts 1 are the last words of Jesus to the ones who are going to continue the ministry and the mission. Turn back to Luke 24. So what I want us to focus on today is what are, what are the things that Jesus was pushing and, and, and informing the disciples about in these last moments that he's got to speak with them. What is it that Jesus is teaching these men? What are the last words that Jesus is sharing with these 12? I, I think it's vitally important to know that, that there are some factors that Jesus wanted to instill in these, these men before he ascends back to the Father. Luke 24 gives us some insight. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, now this is post-resurrection, this is Jesus post-resurrection speaking to his disciples, these are the, my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, Jesus is going to reaffirm what he's already said to them in the three and a half years that they've spent with him. He's going to reaffirm those things and all of those things point back to who he is and what he came to accomplish. 
He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says that all that he said about what's coming, what's going to happen, that the, that the ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be global in its reach, in its impact. These things must be fulfilled, and they, they're going to be fulfilled through these 11 ordinary men. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name, look at this, to all nations, to all ethne, to all ethnicities. Don't think about it as countries, but to every ethnic race on the face of the earth, God's mission for these 11 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed to every single person. That's a pretty big mission. I would offer to you that that mission is larger than going to the moon. You are witnesses. Of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Go back to Acts. So Jesus says to his disciples during those 40 days, let's go into the Old Testament and let's look how the law of Moses pointed to my ministry, my death, my burial, my resurrection. Let's go back into the prophets and let's see what the prophets have to say about my ministry, my death, my burial, my resurrection. Let's go back into the prophets and let's look at the, let's look at the Psalms. Let's look at the worship Psalms and see how they point to me. What is Jesus doing? What is the first factor that these men have to absolutely understand? They have to know who Jesus is. Seems kind of basic, doesn't it? You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know His heart. You've got to have experienced His grace to understand and participate in the mission that God has for the New Testament church. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, I kind of got that, Pastor. Yeah, you got to kind of got to know Jesus. But you know what I'm finding? I'm finding more and more and more people who know the name of Jesus but know nothing about the name they use. I'm finding more and more people who know the lingo, sing the songs, listen to K-Love, attend a church, have a membership, but they know nothing about Jesus. And as a result of not knowing anything about Jesus, knowing His forgiveness, knowing His grace, they are not on mission and nor can they be. Because you can't give away something you don't have. Look what Jesus says. Verse 3, Acts 1. I'll tell you what, back up, back up to verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to him after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So for those 40 days, Jesus is just pouring into them about what's about to happen and their role in that, that the New Testament church is coming. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you. He's already told them that. The disciples are stressed out about how in the world are we going to continue the works of Jesus if Jesus leaves? Well, Jesus bodily is leaving, but the Holy Spirit is going to come. That's the promise. But they've got to know who Jesus is. They've got to get grounded in the identity of who Christ is. Without Him, without the foundation of Jesus Christ, you have no mission. You have no church. One of the reasons more and more and more and people in our country 
claim to know Christ, yet have no relationship with Him, and have not experienced the grace, is because the gospel they've been hearing is not the gospel at all. And that concerns me deeply. It keeps me up at night. The gospel sounds something like this. Well, if you're not Muslim, and you're not Buddhist, and you're not atheist, and and you're not uh, some other religion, and the only one that's left is Christian, and my grandmother was a Christian, that makes me a Christian, so check the box. Or even worse, here in the Bible Belt, we know just enough gospel, just enough Bible, to where in the right settings we can talk about Jesus, but it only occurs in those settings. Let me give you this quote. I've been reading a book. Our whole staff's been going through this book, actually. It's called The Unsaved Christian. We've been walking through this book together. This is a quote right out of that, that book. Cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't really think he is needed except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. Is that your Jesus that you're following? Is the Jesus you're following nothing more than some magician up in heaven? That when things get bad, you run to him and demand of him to fix your stuff? And and, and by the grace of God, sometimes things work out and it seems as though God does something and you turn your back on him and you live no different than the rest of the world. Can I offer to you that you don't know the Jesus that I have found and has changed my life? If Jesus is nothing more than you, than a Mr. Fix-It for your life, if he's nothing more than 10 steps to a better you, if he's nothing more than than someone you you kind of pull the slot machine and hope something good comes out, if Jesus is nothing more to you than what the media is portraying him to be, you're following the wrong Jesus who's not Jesus at all. Media has taken the Jesus, the historical Jesus of the New Testament, lifted him out and turned him into something that I don't even recognize. There are series right now on Netflix, Amazon Prime, and other that take Jesus and turn him into something that is absolutely appalling. Is that the Jesus that you know, the one that media has told you about? You see, these, these 11 men had to know, without a shadow of doubt, the identity of the Christ. Because it's that identity of the Christ, God among us, Emmanuel. Without that, we've got nothing. We've got no mission. We've got no gospel. We've got no good news if Jesus isn't exactly who the New Testament says that he is. We've got nothing. Paul said it this way. If you don't have a bodily resurrection, which includes the crucifixion, his ministry, and all that it ought, if you don't have a bodily resurrection, you have no church, no faith, no sermons, no Bible, nothing in which to trust. You are on your own, and we are a people most miserable. And I would offer that some of you are miserable because you've never met the Jesus of the New Testament. You're putting your faith somewhere else. He's an imaginary friend with magical powers that bring you good luck. That's not Jesus at all. So Jesus, in those 40 days, drills down into these men. If they didn't know by this point. And I remember the disciples, after Jesus' crucifixion, you know where we define the disciples? We find the fishermen fishing. They spent three and a half years with him. They heard all the lessons. They saw all the miracles. But after Jesus' death, they go back to doing what they'd always done. Because you know what they thought in their mind? It's over. It's done. 
But don't you know when Jesus showed up in that upper room, resurrected? Don't you know that every time they met together, when Jesus would meet with these men and talk with these men, they are in awe of all that, that He is, that, that this man has beat death and He's right here in front of us and He's teaching us and telling us about the mission to come. You know these men, you know their hearts had to burn within them. So the first factor is you've got to know who Jesus is. The real, true, historical God-man who walked among us, laid down His life, shed His blood, placed in a bar tomb, resurrected, and ascended back to the Father. That historical Jesus, if you're putting your faith anywhere else, it's less than, and it will not take you in to the kingdom of God. There's a second factor. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. I know these guys had to be ready to go. I mean, imagine, you're, you're, you're with Jesus 40 days, He's teaching you and loading them up with, with the doctrine and the, and the Old Testament and how it pointed to Him and all the things that they knew, that they thought they knew, that they missed. <clears throat> and here they are. They're, they're ready to charge them out. I would have been. I would have been ready to whatever mission you got, I'm ready to roll. But Jesus says that you, you guys got to wait because you're not ready yet. You're not ready to do ministry yet. You're not ready to be a witness yet. You're not ready to charge the mountain. You're not ready to do what I've called you to do. There's some other element that is absolutely crucial to your ministry and to your mission, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptists, that freak us out a little bit, but hold on, okay? Don't freak out on me. We're going to be dealing with the Holy Spirit a lot in the book of Acts because it's the works of the Holy Spirit in people. that The mission goes forward. Jesus says, you heard from me. For John, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he resurrects. Forty days he's spending with his disciples. And then another week later, a week that's going to go by before Pentecost, before that time falls. And in that period of time, Jesus is pouring into his men. And he says to them, you've got to wait because something's going to happen. Something's going to happen in just a few days from now that's going to be a game changer. The things that you've been worried about, how are we going to remember all that Jesus taught? How are we going to do the miracles that Jesus did? How are we going to go forward with the gospel? We don't know what we're doing. We're just fishermen. We're just tax collectors. We're just zealous. Jesus is saying, hold on, guys. Something's coming. Unlike anything that's ever happened in the world, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. You see, John, he baptized with water in the Jordan. And that baptism was a baptism of repentance, of, of cleansing from sins, a physical act that, that represented a cleansing of sins. But, but this work that Jesus is talking about, it's going to be something on the inside. It's going to be a brand new work where the Holy Spirit actually indwells a human being. That has never happened before. It has never happened in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come along people, come alongside, help them do amazing things. But this beginning of something called the church is brand new. He says, you've got to wait for that because if you try to go without that, you're going to fail. Church, hear me clearly. It's not going to be another program. I'm not anti-program. I'm glad we've got an amazing children's ministry, amazing workers over there. We've got an amazing student ministry and an amazing 
worship team. We, we've got ministries that are going every single week, and they're amazing, and they're beautiful, and I'm glad we've got them, and we're reaching people, connecting with people, and we're seeing people's lives change. But listen, when I tell you, the only way we're going to be able to accomplish the mission that God has given us is if we are led by, surrendered to, completely filled to the brim with the power of the Holy Spirit where He's in control. It's not another vision statement. It's, it's not another evangelism training event. Those are great. It's not you getting more knowledge and getting, getting more information. What it is is about surrendering to the power that is already living in us. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You just need to be yielded to who's already there. We don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in this place. Did you know that? If there's only one born-again person in this building, the Holy Spirit's here. The moment I gave my life to Christ is the moment the Holy Spirit in all of His fullness and all of His power filled me. It's not like one day I had 50% of the Holy Spirit, one day I had like 30%. If I be a good little boy, one day I'll get 100%. No, I got the full, complete, majestic, holy presence of a Creator God living in me as messed up as I am. And so it is with you who's put your faith in Jesus. But what Jesus is going to talk about, being immersed in the Holy Spirit, means giving control over to Him. A.W. Tozer said this, quote, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. It's horrible. But in the New Testament church, the church we're going to be looking at, if the Holy Spirit was removed from what they're doing, 95% of the people would recognize it, they would know that it's failing, and they would respond accordingly. 95% would immediately recognize that the Holy Spirit has pulled back. There's no way they could do what they were going to do without God's power living in them. Church, there's nothing we're going to be able to accomplish. Nothing we're going to be able to accomplish if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead, to work, and to do what He's called us to do in and through us, which requires you to be surrendered and submitted to Him. Which really becomes the problem, isn't it? Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked Him out. They've gathered together at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is directly behind the holy city. So you've got Jerusalem up on the mount. At the highest point of Jerusalem, you've got the temple. If you're standing on the Temple Mount, if you look off behind the temple, kind of to the northeast a little bit, you'll see the Mount of Olives. Between the Mount of Olives and the city is the valley, the Kidron Valley. Between the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. They are gathered on this mountain. Jesus is there. And He's going to say His very last words to His people. But before He can speak, they've got a question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This has been a question that has come up in various times throughout Jesus' ministry with these men, and it's come up in different ways, and I, I would imagine that it came up more than just what we see in the pages of Scripture. But here's what the men are asking. Jesus, you've talked about the Holy Spirit coming, and we know that the prophet, Joel in particular, Joel chapter 2, says that there's going to be a pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that's when the restoration of the kingdom of God is going to happen. So Jesus is now the time when the nation of Israel is going to be restored back to its prominence. 
you know, they've been asking this question many times. Is now the time when the Jews come back to power? Look at what Jesus says to them. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but the Father is fixed by His own authority. Jesus doesn't scold them because certainly one day that is going to come to fruition, that the kingdom of God is going to be established on earth. That's all part of God's plan. But at this particular moment, there is something more weightier than the kingdom of Israel coming back and the Romans being kicked out. There's something more weightier at this moment that these men need to know. He's going to tell them. He's going to tell them that you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He says, you're going to go, you're going to wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and He's going to empower you to do that which you can't do yourself. The result of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling humanity, who've put their faith in Jesus, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is going to bring power, and it's going to bring witness. You see, witness and power is not something we conjure up ourselves. It's the result of the Holy Spirit living in us and us being surrendered to that Holy Spirit. So you can, you can have the Holy Spirit living in you, but you can be living in disobedience to the Holy Spirit. The witness is not a command. It's the result of the Holy Spirit and His presence in your life. The one who has experienced the grace of God. The one who has come from darkness into light. The one who, at the very moment, professes faith in Jesus and the promises that he's made, and is born again, in that moment you get the Holy Spirit. And in that very moment, you have power and witness. Did you know that a person who's come to faith in Christ has only been a new believer maybe a couple of days. Did you know that you have all you need at that moment to tell someone else about Jesus? Even though you're, you don't have a theology degree, you haven't been to Sunday school. Here's what you do know, though. You do know that last week I was living like this. I was an absolute rebellion. Before I came to faith in Christ, I, it was all about me. I was living in rebellion. I rebelled against my parents. I rebelled against the church. I rejected the gospel over and over and over again because for me it came down about control. You see, before I met Christ, I was living in rebellion, and I was also living under the wrath of God. And, and then through a series of a couple of years where Jesus continually convicting me and the Holy Spirit pursuing me, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, in that moment, my life changed. Didn't understand it. Didn't have all the theology to figure it all out. I just know that, that I was a different person after I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that all that shame and all that guilt that I've been carrying around was instantaneous, miraculously removed. And I don't understand it. And, and by the way, all that stuff has never come up again. If it's come up, I brought it up. But my father has never brought it up again. And at that moment, I changed. And since that day, I haven't been perfect by any stretch. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'll tell you one thing that hasn't changed. I'll tell you what has not changed. 
as God has never forsaken me a single time. He's never turned His back on me. He has loved me. He has called me. Scripture makes sense now. The mission of God makes sense. Have I always been obedient? Have I always leaned in and been submissive to the Holy Spirit? No. But God in His grace and His mercy comes along, picks me up, dusts me off, forgives me, sets me back on a path and says, now go do what I've told you to do. My life was once this and now it's this. Guess what, believers? That's all you need to know. You had to have an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed your life. What I want for you to do and what the Scripture is asking you to do is tell somebody who you were before you came to faith in Christ, who, what happened when you met Christ, and who you've been ever since. You have no reason to not bring Jesus up. Just this week, I had the opportunity, we were, myself and one of our deacons was helping a guy out and required us to go load some stuff on a truck at this guy's business. I walk into the guy's business and he's got a radio playing and it's playing it's a preacher, man, he and this guy's preaching too. Now, let me tell you, he's laying the plows down. Radio station, this guy's playing uh, preaching, and I don't know who it is, don't know anything about it. And we were in there long enough where the, the sermon ended, and then they had some gospel music playing. So I'm thinking, hey, you know, this guy, this guy, man, he must be a he must be a believer, but uh, only to find out that uh, he's lost. And he'll tell you that he's lost. Since that time, I found out that that he got really that he got hurt really bad in a church and since that time he's been carrying around anger towards the church you've heard it said right we're all a bunch of hypocrites you probably heard that said right so as I, as we're doing business with him and we're loading the stuff that we purchased from him um i just we're out there tying stuff down on a trailer and i said hey man i want to tell you a story you got time for a story he didn't really respond i said look there was a time in my life where i was lost and every night when I pillowed my head at night, I knew that the God of heaven was going to pour his wrath out on me. And the more I learned about it, and the more I heard of the gospel, the more I came to the place where I could not run from him anymore. And I surrendered my heart and life to Christ. Don't remember what I prayed. Don't remember anything. I just know that when I finally came to the end of my rope, God stuck his hand out and says, now you're in the palm of my hand, boy. Nothing will pluck you out. Nothing. I got to the place where I could call Father, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, I could call him Abba. On that day, everything changed. And from that point, I've, never, I've not been perfect, but I'm going to tell you right now, my life changed on that day. And what I wanted to say to him is what I've said countless times, is when I look at a person, I've got to share that quick. It takes, it takes 15 seconds, folks. 15 seconds out of your day. I guarantee you got 15 seconds to tell somebody about what Jesus has done for you. It takes 15 seconds. Less than a minute. If you're prepared. And at the end of that, I usually look at the person and say, now, now, do you have a story like that? Do you, do you have a story similar to mine? And before I could get there, I think he knew where I was going. Before I could get there, he says, man, I, I got to go in here and check on something. He goes back into the store, and I could tell that he was really, really anxious about even talking about Jesus. Now, isn't it amazing that a man who's hearing about Jesus on the radio, hearing the songs, probably even singing them, will tell you in a short order that he's lost and doesn't know Jesus Christ. Yet, he's completely fine with listening to this on the radio. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's trying to find some kind of peace in his heart by being close to Jesus but not surrendering to him. He's, he's okay with hanging around. He just doesn't want to get too involved, too religious, too committed, too faithful, too surrendered. You see, that's dangerous. The Holy Spirit 
is going to do a new and amazing work. And the church is going to be based upon the Holy Spirit's work in people that He indwells. And those He indwells are those who put their faith in Jesus, surrendering their life to Him. I no longer have control over my life. And every day is a struggle to give up my control to His control. So He says, Jesus, in these last moments, He says to His men, you got to know who I am. I'm the foundation of the mission. you you got to know who I am. And secondly, you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare go out there and try to do ministry without the Holy Spirit. Church, don't let, let us dare try to do ministry in 2020 without the Holy Spirit leading and initiating and guiding us to do it. Because if we're doing it in our own strength, we're going to take the glory for it. When that building gets done over there, it'll be by the glory of God and His provision alone. When we move back in there, we have our first Sunday back in that worship space, we are going to give God the glory for great things He has done. You see, if we do all the work, we take all the credit. We take all the glory for it. Finally, these men are going to have to stay focused. They're going to stay focused. Notice what Jesus does here. He, he directs their attention not only to being filled with the Holy Spirit and waiting and receiving power, but exactly where they're going to go. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You know what a witness is? A witness is somebody who's seen something, experienced something, and is ready to tell somebody else about it. But the Greek word of witness, the Greek word is martyr. It's where we get our word martyr from. To follow Jesus is to die to self. To follow Jesus is to bring some ridicule upon yourself. If somebody told you following Jesus was going to be easy, I'm sorry that you found out that it's not. It's hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's the greatest mission you'll ever go on. Jesus says here, you're going to begin in Jerusalem. Why did Jesus say go to Jerusalem? Why did Jesus say start out Jerusalem, Judea? Because it's in Jerusalem and Judea that these men are going to have the easiest time sharing the gospel because these are the people who are closest to them culturally. So if they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and out in the towns of Judea, they're going to find people just like them speaking the same language. They're going to find people who are raised in Judaism. They're going to find people who've put their trust in the law rather than putting their trust in Jesus. They're going to find people who are going to offer sacrifices. They're going to find people who, who were raised just like they were. So Jesus says, I want you to start where it's easiest to share the gospel, and that is with your contemporaries. Jerusalem and Judea is like your neighbor across the street who's grown up in the Bible Belt. They were born and raised in good old North Carolina. They speak the same language. They eat the same food. They, they talk about the same things. They love the same basketball teams and football teams. All has been prepared for you to walk across the yard to the person across the street because that person across the street has more in common with you than you realize. The platform is already there. All that is left is obedience to what the Holy Spirit's been telling you to do for a long time. They've got kids or grandkids. The kids are in school. They go, they punch a clock. They, they work in a school system. They, they, they're involved in sports or dance. The, all of this stuff is already there. Jesus says to his men, you go out in Jerusalem first and you're going to find people just like you. Start there. Jesus didn't send them to Rome the first day because he knew there were too many barriers between them and Rome. You know where the best place to start sharing the gospel is? Right where you live. I'm not asking you to go to Brooklyn. I'm not asking you to go to upstate Maine somewhere where the culture is very different 
What, what Jesus is saying is you start on your street, you start in your hometown, you start at your business, you start at your restaurants, and you start at your grocery store because they're the people that you're going to recognize and you're going to have a connection with. Doesn't that make sense? Your family, your friends, the people you play sports with, the, the guy who's coaching your team who doesn't go to church, the, the, the guy across the street who, who works for the city of Lumberton, who when you come home, when you come to church every morning, he's out on the front porch reading his newspaper and he sees you leave. Wouldn't that be the best place to start bringing Jesus up? Then he says, you got to go to Samaria also. Oh boy, those Samaritans, they're, they're a different group of people. You're going to have to go to Samaria. Samaria is different. They worship differently. They talk differently. They they have different customs. And not only that, there's a racism that is built in between the Jews and the Samaritans that we learned in John 4. So when Jesus says to these men, you're going to be going to Samaria, I wonder if they didn't think back to that day that Jesus himself said, I have to go to Samaria. I imagine they did. You know who Samaria represents? Samaria represents those people who deeply offend you. Samaria represents those people who are not as religious as you. Samaria represents those people that when you talk to them, they talk just like the world does, and you get offended by it. They use colorful language. They tell colorful jokes. Uh, their lifestyle may be totally different than you. And wouldn't it be a lot easier if we just stay right around Jerusalem? I found that if we use the excuse that we're going to just hang around with the people we know, that not only do we not share the gospel with the outcasts, we don't share it with the people we know either. Jesus says you're going to have to go to the place that's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to have to go out there to a place that I know you don't want to go, but this is the mission, and this is what the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to do. But then he goes on even further. You're going to go to the uttermost. Think Samaria is different? Then take a trip to China or India, the Dominican Republic, where every day of their existence is trying to find another morsel of food, where 70% of the world doesn't have fresh water in their home or a clean bathroom, where the children's bellies are distended because they're starving and there's not enough food to go around so different than the way you were raised, completely opposite. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to give you power and witness to go yet even to those people because they need hope as well. Yeah, they're way different than anything you've ever experienced. But Jesus says you must go there. So Jesus, in these last moments, he gets those people to focus on the mission. We are distracted. These guys get easily distracted. Notice what happens. Jesus gets done speaking. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Gravity turns loose of Jesus. They're up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has spent 40 days with these guys. He's poured into them everything that he can pour into them. He says the last sentence, the last words that he says is, you will be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost. That's it. Everything's been clarified. Wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you. And he's going to give you the ability to witness and be my witnesses. And then gravity lets go. I, I don't think it was a long period of time. I don't, think, I don't think Jesus was moving like really, really slow. I think as soon as the gravity lets go, Jesus goes up pretty rapidly. So I don't think there's a lot of time passing here. 
as he's ascending, but maybe some time is passing now. Notice what happens. As he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is gone. He's gone. He, he told him he was going to go back to the glory that he had before. He's going to go back to the Father. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That has occurred with them witnessing it on this mountainside. Jesus is gone. But you know what these people are doing? They're looking up. I don't know how much time passed here. Maybe it was a few minutes. What a glorious, worship-filled experience they've just had. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a good thing just to kind of stay here for a while? Just bask in the glory of what we've seen. To talk about the blessings of seeing Jesus both crucified, buried, resurrected, and now the final element, seeing Him ascend. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be good just to kind of hang out right here and, and just, just, just bask in the glory of this and this great worship-filled experience? And this is what's happening. Their eyes are cast towards the clouds. Jesus is gone. He's coming again, but there's something to do between His ascension and His return. So much so that Two angels show up. The way it reads, apparently the two angels are standing with the people looking up. I don't know how much awkward time goes by, but eventually one of the angels broke the silence and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? That, folks, is a profound question. The question is much deeper than just, are you going to stand here looking into the clouds? The question is deep because, are we going to be satisfied with just singing a few songs here and gathering in this building for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings? Are we going to be satisfied just going to our small group? Are we going to be satisfied maybe just serving in the food pantry? Are we going to be satisfied with just the blessings of worshiping corporately? Are we going to be simply satisfied standing around with our hands in our pockets waiting for Jesus to return while the rest of the world dies in their sins? That's the question. Maybe, maybe we just stand here and sing and build a temple up here. That would be great. If you remember, Jesus had Peter, James, and John with him on the mountain of transfiguration, and Jesus' glory is revealed. And uh, man, it was a glorious time for those inner three. And Peter's so overwhelmed. He says, You know, and it, guys, it has been good to be right here. Let's build an altar. And Jesus, after his glory had faded back and he walks back, he says, come on, guys, there's work to do. You see, the ministry is down off the mountain. The mission is down off the mountain. The, the mission is not here in this building necessarily. We preach the gospel, we invite you to respond. But here we worship, here we equip, here we send. Because out there is where the mission is. The person who serves you at Walmart, the person who's going to serve you lunch in a little while, the person who works on your car, your brother or sister, your grandkids and your kids. But Jesus, it'd be a lot easier just to stay here, wouldn't it? I mean, there's no risk involved here. How much risk is involved with staying here? Well, showing up. Has Christianity turned in for you to be just showing up once a week somewhere? Is that, is that, is Christianity for you, following Jesus for you, showing up for an hour and a half, two hours, one day a week? Is that what Jesus died 
to make possible? Did Jesus shed his blood in front of people who were scoffing at him simply so we could have a comfortable building, sing a few songs, and feel good about it? I just read recently, brand new statistics. I know you love statistics. I don't, sometimes I get too wrapped up in them, but these are, these are pretty powerful. You've been hearing for years that America is 80% Christian, right? You heard that statistic? I'm skeptical every time I hear it. Because we've got a nation that is 80% following Jesus. We are in serious trouble. What I see in the world, what I see in our country, what I see going on, there's no way it could be 80%. Well, the, some people who are smarter than me just did a new study. They're saying less than 10%. They're actually saying probably 8%, but could be as low as 4 to 6% of America is actually following Jesus. Does that not make some sense now? Does that not put some things together? Does that mean that people know about Jesus, but they just know about him, they don't know him? Could it be that there are people attending services this morning who know about Him but have never surrendered and they're satisfied with knowing about Him rather than surrendering to Him? Could it be that that's where you are? Not only that, but we also find out that only that 98% of those who claim to follow Jesus have told somebody else about the Jesus they found. That starts to make sense as well, does it not? If, if only... If less than 10% of our culture is truly following Jesus, and of that 10%, 98% of them aren't talking about Jesus, except on Sunday morning when we sing the songs, then it makes sense that the state of our nation and the state of our world is in such a mess. Did you know that many in our world who hate the Christian church, did you know they've been writing our eulogy for a long time? You look at church history, you find that there are countless people down through church history who have discounted the church and said, it's just a matter of time. It's all a fable anyway. It's just a matter of time. The whole thing's going to fall apart. And every year when the Southern Baptist Convention and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, those who are evangelical Christians' main lines, put out their numbers on how the church is doing, and those folks who hate the church see that worship is declining, gospel sharing is declining, people coming to faith in Christ is declining. You know what they do? They celebrate, and they say that the death of the church is just right around the corner. But, oh, let me tell you something. Let me, just, let me just inform, if you're one of those folks, let me just inform you of something. You can write all the eulogies you want to, but the, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon the blood of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and not a single man or a single woman on the face of the thirst is going to stop the mission of Jesus Christ, period. It's not going to happen. But I can tell you this, Satan is doing a pretty good job at derailing the focus of many of a person who's put their faith in Jesus. We're talking about everything in the world except Jesus. We're talking about everything in the world, everything in our life. We're even sharing the deepest brokenness of our life, but we're not bringing Jesus up. And I'll tell you why. It's because we don't know who Jesus is, or we're not filled with the Holy Spirit and being obedient to Him, or we've been distracted with lesser things. The same three things that Jesus poured into those disciples for those 40 days. Same thing's true today. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? If you do and He's changed your life, then it is desperately, desperately quiet in Robinson County for a county that claims to be the majority Christian. Father in heaven, 
We can't do anything without your power, your strength, your presence. And in 2020, we're not going to do anything unless you lead us, that you initiate it through the Holy Spirit. So that's why we're going to spend 40 days in prayer. And in that 40 days, Father, we're even going to fast as a church body for those who choose to. That we're going to choose to not eat. Some of us are going to choose to stay away from social media, all kinds of opportunities. But the reason we're going to do that, Father, is we want to hear from you. Because you're speaking, we're just not listening. For some, Father, there are some who see your son as nothing more than a good luck charm. And Father, they, they only run to you when something goes wrong. But Father, they live just like the world, no different. And because they haven't put faith in you, Father, your word is very clear. They're lost and they're under your wrath. There are some that are so distracted that Christianity for them is an hour and a half on Sunday morning and nothing more. Their kids don't see them pray. Jesus never comes up in the home. So following you is nothing more than Sunday morning service. For others, Father, we're living in disobedience, knowing all along that you live in us, the Spirit is speaking, the Spirit is leading, but we're rejecting it. Father, these three factors are the three things, three reasons why our country is in such a mess. Our churches are in a mess. So, Father, revive us again. Speak to our hearts, and may we be obedient. Ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.